0: Good afternoon, everyone. It is CW. Thank you for joining us on the Top Docs radio show today. It is our ongoing series with Medical Association of Georgia, and we're going to be getting into chronic diseases. Now, these chronic diseases like asthma, cancer, diabetes, and heart disease cost Georgia approximately $40 billion annually, and they contribute to increased absenteeism among students, employers, both. They increase healthcare costs for the employers around the state of Georgia, and they result in more than 200,000s of years of life lost across our population. Chronic diseases in Georgia are preventable and controllable, and today we're going to be sitting down with an expert on the subject. Dr. Jean O'Connor is the Chronic Disease Prevention Director at the Georgia Department of Public Health. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Give folks a little bit of your background, just so they understand where you come from around this space, because you've been working in the chronic care and chronic disease space for quite a while in your career.
1: Yeah, I've been working in public health for about 20 years. i worked at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I'm delighted now to be at the Georgia Department of Public Health as the Chronic Disease Prevention Director. My education is in public health, so I have a doctorate in public health and a law degree.
0: And what got you interested in public health as your focus?
1: Really early in my career, I worked at Grady Hospital and in DeKalb County in emergency medical services. And I was, um, as I would go around the county and see patients, I would see patients repeatedly, the same patients with things like diabetes and hypertension, um, people who use tobacco, um, and really saw the burden of those conditions in our communities and um, really started to think about all the systems um, and the things that could be done to address those. And that's really how I got into public health to begin with.
0: Well, it was some pretty impressive statistics around the effects of chronic disease around the state of Georgia with regards to the total number of folks in our population that are dealing with some form of chronic disease, whether it's one or several of those, because they can often overlap with each other and some lead to the others, for example, well, you're talking about tobacco use, for example, it's kind of one of the cornerstones for some of these other problems. But where do we stand when we look at Georgia against the rest of the country?
1: So overall, we rank about 40th as compared with other states in the country. Um, we rank 21st in tobacco use or in smoking, 41st in diabetes and 32nd in obesity. But that overall ranking of 40th is driven by primarily by chronic conditions and then also by what we call the social determinants of health, the things that contribute to sort of lifelong poor health outcomes like limited education or underemployment or unemployment.
0: I mean, it is rel- relatively a r- largely rural state, a couple of major cities in it, but but more or less rural. Obviously, here in the South, we're all about meat and three and, and maybe a cigarette or two. Um, I assume that's kind of the uphill battle that you're fighting as you're trying to help educate people and and reduce the rate of some of these things occurring in our population?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, across the Southeast, we see higher rates of things like heart disease, stroke, tobacco use, obesity. And there are a lot of historical reasons for that, a lot of economic reasons as well. Um, and so we do have a higher hill to climb than some other states in the country in terms of improving our health outcomes. But we have many partners across the state, employers, the hospital association, the medical association, and many more who I think are really very deeply committed to improving health uh, in our state faster than any other state, especially at least in the southeast.
0: Well, we talked about the fact that these diseases, in at least to a large extent, are preventable. Um, certainly can be muted in the, the extent and pace at which they advance, for sure particularly with a, an increased level of awareness but i mean i i come from a background in healthcare myself and i know that when you're talking about these types of lifestyle habits uh, that get ingrained in you from the time you're a child through uh, when you you know pass on uh, it would seem that starting with the children is the is the place to be to really begin to make that long run impact on this it's it's hard when you've been a smoker for 40 years, you've been eating your burgers and fries for 40 years. It's hard to all of a sudden now to be thinking, I want some free-range chicken and some greens. Talk about how you're tackling the issue of awareness particularly among the young people because I know that there's some initiatives around the state that are being implemented to try to t- try to get at that.
1: Yeah, at the Department of Public Health, we have a number of initiatives to try to get at some of those things. So in the area of tobacco use prevention, we really do think that if we can prevent kids from starting to use tobacco, um, we can reduce our rates of tobacco use among adults in the long run as well. And we're seeing those efforts work. One of the major projects we have, initiatives we have, is to promote tobacco-free schools across our state. So we're now um, at 115 out of 181 school districts across the state that have adopted 100% tobacco-free policy, 24 hours a day, seven days a week on their campuses to include uh e-cigarettes and, and vaping products, and that's by uh, limiting use by children and by adults. So we think that's really important.
0: Now, in 2016, what would be the reason why a school would say, eh, well, we're going to let somebody hang out and you know have a drag?
1: Yeah, a lot of time. I know a lot. It's hard to believe. Um, I think in a lot of context. Um, but when we go out and we talk with the school systems and the parents, um, especially the further out you get, um, into rural Georgia, you know, those school campuses are used for a lot of things after hours. Um, they're uh-huh. used for sporting events, and I think a lot of times there's concerns about um alienating the parents or donors to school sports programs and those sorts of things. But as we work with the, the school systems, really what we're finding is that when they learn more about the reasoning, um, uh, and, and really the primary reason is norm change, right? If kids don't see it, they won't use it, um, mm-hmm, but they mm-hmm. model what adults do. Um, you know, it, As they uh, learn about that, they quickly come on board and want to adopt the policy.
0: Well, one of the large groups of listeners that we have here, particularly with the Medical Association of Georgia Shows, are physicians around the state. Uh, They distribute our content across its membership. So uh, clearly, we'll be speaking with some of the physicians in the community. Are there some things that if I'm a physician and I'm seeing either young people or or even my adult patients or thought processes some ways to, to think about some of these issues that might help turn that Titanic, if you will, particularly if I'm an adult.
1: Yeah. So what one of the things we encourage uh, talking about tobacco is um, for physicians to ask all their patients and really kids are not too young starting at even 8 or 9 or 10. Ask them about whether or not they use tobacco or have been offered tobacco products by their friends, you know, advise them why to quit or why not to start and then refer them to the Georgia tobacco quit line. So that's one thing that we really recommend. Another thing when we talk about nutrition and physical activity is really to talk with your patients about those, um, both of those things, um, recommendations for physical activity and as well recommendations for good nutrition. And um, the U.S. dietary guidelines from 2015 are a great tool um, for talking um, with both children and adults about recommendations for uh, consuming more fruits and vegetables. So those are two. There's a few more we recommend as well, and um, one has to do with things we'd like to see physicians do in terms of looking through their EMRs and identifying patients at high risk.
0: So what would what would fall under that in particular you think that would be a place to start?
1: So... Um, for diabetes and hypertension in adults. So we've talked a little bit about how if you've spent 40 years or 30 years at right, eating what you want to eat and um, smoking perhaps, um, you know, then you, you have a, a higher hill, c- hill to climb um, as an adult. And so one of the things that physicians really can do is use their EMRs, look through their patient records. Um, this is something we recommend. It's something also that the Centers for Disease Control and uh, Control and Prevention recommend. Basically, Go searching for those patients with A1c's above 6. That's going to tell you if you've got folks who have undiagnosed diabetes. Look for the patients that have multiple blood pressures of over 140, over 90. You know, sometimes when multiple providers see a patient in a practice, you might not pick up on something subtle. When you look back in the EMR, the EHR data, you may have an opportunity to find those patients. And we have some great examples from across the state where practices have done that and been really successful in finding and recalling patients to bring them into care Um, because we can't prevent that stroke and that adult that has hypertension unless we know they have hypertension.
0: I would imagine that some of the changes that we've been actually talking about lately with MACRA and with uh, value-based reimbursement plans that are in place now and being implemented over the next few months will tackle that a little bit because I know that part of meeting the requirements is to do some of those things managing my chronic illness patients better trending my a1c's down across my patient population and by managing hypertension are my patients maintaining control or even seeing some decline in their blood pressure so i would assume that some of those things there's certain elements of the aca that i definitely agree with and those those changes and and the changes that cms have been making in that direction, I think, will really have some measure of impact on those types of issues. Since you're saying you gotta be proactive, you gotta be looking, don't just see them when they're coming into the office and, and talk to CW about his blood pressure today because he's here. It's it's maybe doing some outreach, having one of your nursing staff or even a physician perhaps if they have some some time. But I would imagine that they can probably have nursing staff reach out and, and actually touch base with some of these folks.
1: That's right. And I think, you know, the the new macro rules and the new incentive payment systems that are proposed are really going to move this forward. But even now, many practices have these um, quality reporting measures that they use, whether it's PQRS or if you're a federally qualified health center, it's, you know, your UDS um, data that you're reporting. Um, and, and, and one of the things that the Department of Public Health that we offer is some support and technical assistance to practices that really want to delve into the data they have and look at that group of patients. Maybe you know you have, um, you know, percentage of patients with hypertension. You're not getting the control rates you want in those patients. Um, so some of the types of things that we do with practices, along with some of our partners is try to help them look at those data in more detail and then um, use some of the best practices that are out there to help them get better control. So in hypertension, you know, medication adherence is often a problem that we hear about both from patients and from providers. Medication's a little unpleasant. Patients don't want to take it. They don't have symptoms. So, you know, there's not a lot of incentive there for the patient. And the providers often are frustrated because they have these patients and they're reporting poor control measures for them. (laughs) So, you know, um, know, there are some recommendations from CDC for things like team-based care, which is really people working at the top of their license, refer those patients out have them get their blood pressure checked at a fire department, in a community setting, in a community center, places the patient can go and be actively engaged in their care, not relying solely on the provider all of the time. So self-management education programs is another type of a practice that we recommend.
0: Talking with the Chronic Disease Prevention Director from the Georgia Department of Public Health, Dr. Jean O'Connor, learning about some of the ways that the Department of Public Health is trying to help. Uh, physicians around the community, as well as just patients themselves be engaged in managing these chronic illnesses when they occur. And hopefully um, with some proactive approaches to be able to prevent them from occurring in the first place, because as we've talked about already, uh, many of them actually are preventable. And when you talked about uh, earlier, there's a, a, a smoking cessation line, how, how effective is that? What do I get when I call it? What, what's it doing for me?
1: Sure. So in Georgia, we operate the Georgia Tobacco Quit Line. Um, every state in the country operates a quit line. Um, and in Georgia, our phone number is 1 877 270 STOP. And when patients call that quit line, they get a live counselor. Um, that counselor asks them about the reason for their call and their interest in quitting tobacco, tries to assess their level of addiction and gives them some tips and some tools. Um, that quit line will um, provide that patient up to three sort of rounds of active communication or coaching calls, um, 10 if they're a pregnant or postpartum woman, um, and also will ship four weeks of nicotine replacement therapy to that patient to help mm-hmm. get them started in their journey to quitting tobacco. So we're really excited to operate it. It's free. It's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and in multiple languages.
0: Do we have any idea on the level of of engagement with that opportunity i mean i would think that just a phone number an opportunity to talk to somebody to say tell me about how you know how you're doing with your smoking and 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 why do you want to quit that kind of stuff would be utilized but the opportunity to be able to actually get a a kickstart and have some you said some cessation medication if you will the the like the patches Mm -hmm, is what we're talking about that's that's big
1: we, yeah, we do um, see huge interest in this program. We get a lot of calls, especially when we market it or talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and we, uh, we serve about 10,000 uh, clients a year through that wow. program in Georgia. Um, put that in a little bit of perspective, though, we have over a million uh, smokers <laughs> in our state, about 500,000 of them a year report wanting to quit. So we can't serve everyone who wants help, but delighted to be able to serve the people that we can. And When they do call the quit line, 33% of them are tobacco-free seven months after they call. So it's a very effective
0: Yeah, that's really great. Are there other initiatives, other, other resources in addition to the quit line that are out there for folks who are trying to stop smoking?
1: There are. One that we really encourage providers' offices to operate, so we don't operate directly, but we encourage providers and community centers and groups to operate our um, Diabetes Self-Management Education programs. So I actually want to talk about two. One is Diabetes Self-Management Education and then also the Diabetes Prevention Program. Diabetes Self-Management Education, or DSME, is for patients who have already been diagnosed with diabetes, These are courses that are taught by a certified diabetes educator that um, are reimbursable by Medicare. So um, some physician practices are very interested in this because they um, see it as an opportunity to bring more revenue into their um, practices and also to get better control over those A1Cs for those patients with diabetes. Those are structured courses. They're offered in a group setting, usually a group of 6 to 10 over a couple of hours, usually over a couple of weeks. Um, and we see tremendous results from those programs as well. That's uh, in part why the Medicare program reimburses um, for DSME, um, not just here in Georgia, but everywhere. Uh, the Diabetes Prevention Program is tends to be offered right now more only in the metro area, but it's a great program for people who have the risk factors for diabetes or who are overweight or obese, who want to lose weight and really um, sustain a Life Change. So that's a year-long program. It's offered primarily by the YMCAs, although also by some other community groups um, here in the metro Atlanta area. And, and that engages patients in physical activity nutrition with the idea that we can prevent diabetes, slow down um, that insulin resistance um, and the weight gain and those types of things that go along with diabetes.
0: Well, and that's a That's a big one for us here in our community as well. Obviously, around the state of Georgia, um, a large black population and that particular group of folks are going to be predisposed to developing diabetes anyway. And then if you layer in some dietary choices, um, perhaps uh, some obesity on top of that, and, and you have a high rate of occurrence of diabetes. I came from a medical practice that deals in wounds. Uh, chronic wounds and diabetics were, you know, obviously a very large component of that. We never had a shortage of, of patients coming through with the diabetic ulcers uh, leading to limb loss and and uh, all the issues that come with that. So having those types of plans. And then that, that, that's one of the big challenges around preventing diabetes, for example, is I don't feel bad. You know, I, I don't really start feeling ill effects for a while in most cases until it's really kind of advanced and now it's starting to affect my eyes, my kidneys, my heart, those types of things.
1: So if I can, I'd like to tell you a story actually about someone who works with me. I asked her if she would mind me sharing her story and she said, no, please go ahead. Um, she uh, She's a younger woman who, like you said, had felt no real signs or symptoms, um, but was overweight and she knew that, but not very motivated to sort of change her behavior, her diet, and and was having a hard time doing those things, went for a regular routine doctor's appointment, and she's really fortunate that she did. She had a blood pressure of 170 over 144. You know, the doctor said, how do you feel? She said, I feel fine. And the doctor told her apparently that, you know, well, you're going to die if you don't change her behavior. And so um, she embarked on a journey actually because of that conversation with that physician, um, who has really supported her in her behavior change. Um, she now has a normal blood pressure. She does take hypertension medication. She's lost about 25 pounds, um, gets much more physical activity, and is really on a very different path in her life to be healthy. I think she's probably a, a, a unique case um, in a lot of ways, but um, I think it's proof that it, it it can be done, and with the right conversation with the right person, you know, people really can be motivated to change their lives. And we do know that um, recommendations from physicians to do things like quitting tobacco or changing your diet or um, getting more physical activity really do make a difference in people's lives. So I would just encourage your audience not to forget that those they, saying those things to patients really can help.
0: When you talked about the the diabetes the management course as well as the prevention uh, offerings that you're you're providing is a component of that the messaging you know what i'm saying I recently interviewed a gentleman whose their, their application actually adds a layer of automation and and engagement and and empowers a patient to do certain levels of cardiac rehabilitation outside of you know an office for example um, they were talked about the fact that only 35% of the patients that have a cardiovascular event actually engage in the cardiac rehab that would prevent the, the recurrence. One of the big, I asked, well, why is that? And one of the big reasons was how, how effectively it is conveyed to the patient in the doctor's office that you really need to do this and tying into what you're talking about with diabetes and uh, the educational offerings that you're providing. Is that part of it that, that don't just recommend it to your patient. Don't just hand a prescription pad or, or something like that, that says, do this. But as, as your, your story told, they got very direct, very, I mean, the message was powerful. And I would think that that, as far as our, our physician and healthcare provider listeners that that is an important component of it is to say, "No, seriously, this is really, really a big deal. I mean, in terms of how we convey it, it's got to be a big component.
1: I think that is a big component. And I also think convenience for the patient and the provider is pretty important as well. It's one thing to have the conversation. It's another thing to actually refer the patient to a place where they can go. Um, and actively change their behavior. We refer to those in in the chronic disease field as individually adapted health behavior change programs, whatever they are, whether it's a quit line or um, or a diabetes self-management education program where physical activity program where people can really um, set their own goals um, uh, uh, and, and that motivational conversation and then that ability for the patient to set their own goals and then act on them is very important as well. With the quit line, in terms of convenience, one of the things we offer is that uh, if providers are interested, they can use our fax referral tool, Um, they can load it straight into their EMR, um, and we're happy to provide more information about that to any provider that's interested. They can contact us at chronic.disease at dph.ga.gov, and um, the provider practice can um, automatically refer that patient to the quit line, and then what happens is the quit line calls the patient Oh. So those kinds of um, techniques also can be really highly effective in terms of engaging the patient. A lot of times people who are dealing with addiction or who are overweight, may have hypertension or multiple chronic conditions, also have a variety of other challenges in their lives, childcare, mm-hmm. employment. Um, they may be a caregiver for someone else. So everything we can do to make it easier for them um, to, to change those health behaviors is going to help them
0: how about dietary recommendations we we talked a little bit about that we talked about the impact of obesity on the development of a number of these problems the cardiovascular disease diabetes hypertension all certainly can accompany obesity how how are things going now with with what dietary recommendations are out there i know they've kind of evolved over time where are they today
1: so they have evolved. Last year, the federal government released a new set of U.S. dietary guidelines, the 2015 guidelines. The 2010 guidelines that some people might remember were fairly complicated. They had like 23 recommendations plus six more for um, certain subpopulations The new guidelines are um, a little simpler and maybe a little more common sense for most people so for otherwise healthy adults what's recommended is really a variety of fruits and vegetables especially whole fruits um, and whole vegetables and and to consume those first fill half your plate um, with with those um, grains low-fat dairy low-fat milk um, and then a variety of protein foods but low on oil low on sugar low on salt in fact you don't need to add any salt or sugar to your diet, and you're still probably going to get more um, than is recommended just because you find those things in processed <laughs> foods. So.
0: Yeah. What about the, the challenge that we have? I know we do around areas of Atlanta food deserts are from the Department of Public Health. What kind of things are we trying to do so that some of those folks that live in those areas of food desert being an area where I think it's, it's either one or two miles, maybe more um, where there's not a grocery store available for people to buy fresh produce.
1: Right. So the ideal is to live in a sort of 20-minute walkable neighborhood to within 20 minutes to be able to walk to things like grocery stores. And that's about a mile. Um, in terms of what we're doing in, in Georgia, it's a very large state. Um, and we have uh, a number of persistent poverty counties counties with a large percentage of the population under 185% of poverty, especially in South Georgia. And here in the metro area, we do have neighborhoods as well, as you mentioned. Um, One of the things that we're doing together with the Centers for Disease Control and the Arthur Blank Foundation is working on something called the West Side Health Collaborative. So the west side of Atlanta, Um, is an area that um, historically has been underserved in a number of ways and has high rates of diabetes, heart disease, as well as HIV and some other conditions. We're working with those organizations as a part of a community-driven collaborative to help the community decide what it wants and needs, and then to bring those things to that community. And one of the things that uh, has been done in that area is healthier corner stores, which is an initiative that we're trying to expand. So you'll find corner stores, convenience stores often in many low-income neighborhoods. um, And we have done a little bit of work and hope to do a lot more in the future um, to try to encourage those retailers to provide Um, fresh fruit and vegetable options at the point of sale. Um, So those are some of the kinds of things that in those neighborhoods, in those contexts, I think we can all do more of. And physician and healthcare provider support for those kinds of initiatives, even though it's not happening directly in their practice, is a really important thing for us as well.
0: I know that one of the initiatives that the Department of Public Health had put out there to tackle the rate of obesity, for example, among our children and and to try to offset some of these diseases from happening and then also potentially to exert some measure of, of influence on the parents itself was Power Up for 30. How is, that, how is that going?
1: Yeah, Power Up for 30 is going really well. I don't have the exact number of elementary schools that have adopted it with me, but um, we're very, very close to our goal, which was 1,000 um, elementary schools okay, in the state of Georgia. Okay, it's been Georgia. a while
0: since I talked with uh, uh, your, your colleague, Dr. Brenda Fitzgerald, about that program. It was still early on, I think at that point in time, it was around 400. So obviously making some good progress.
1: Making great progress and also partnering with um, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Georgia Organics, and a number of other organizations to try to increase farm to school opportunities in the school systems here in Georgia. Recognize the schools that have, have done that. And Georgia Organics actually has done a great job with something called the Golden Radish Award um, in partnership with the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Public Health to recognize those schools that try to bring fresh fruits and vegetables Georgia-grown into the school system. We also you know, do a lot of work with school cafeterias um, in partnership with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta um, through Georgia SHAPE to try to encourage schools to reorganize their cafeteria in a way that makes, again, that sort of healthy choice, the easy choice. If you put the um, plain milk in front of the chocolate milk kids are more likely to take the plain milk <laughs> simple things like that
0: interesting so for you i mean what do you tend to spend your day focused on trying to tackle i mean because we've got a pretty wide slate of things that you are trying to reduce their occurrence on how do you how do you approach your day what do you what what do you spend your your time trying to really get after
1: so we do we have about 27 different programs related to chronic disease prevention here in the state of Georgia. Um, You know, I think we spend a lot of our time, my team does, um, really trying to um, focus on those conditions where we can have the greatest impact. Um, So tobacco use is one where, you know, we're we're winning the war, I believe, on tobacco use in this state, our ranking of 21st uh, is compared with our overall ranking of 40th tells mm-hmm. us that we're making good progress. So we're trying to spend our time on the things that we know work. At the same time, we're really trying to develop new initiatives and programs. When we were talking about diabetes earlier, one of the things I didn't get to say, but want to say is that we are also trying to encourage provider practices in some of those areas of the state where we don't have enough of those kinds of programs to take those up, so to offer them. Um, and one of the things we're doing is offering uh, to Walk practices or healthcare systems through the diabetes self-management accreditation process, so their program can become accredited, um, and and um, and they can start offering and being reimbursed for that program. And we're working on launching new programs. We talked about nutrition and physical activity. Um, we're hoping uh, that we'll be able to launch some new programs starting next year to really try to address the nutrition environment and the physical activity environment for adults in our state in some of the poorest counties. Um, and we're waiting to hear about some uh, new funding um, that may be able to help us support that.
0: From the perspective of resources, are there partnerships, collaborations, corporate involvement that the Department of Public Health could benefit from that maybe they wish would, would emerge from, uh, from around our community?
1: Well, we're always delighted to work with the um, large employers here in Georgia and the small employers, but um, the large employers uh, that are self-funded here in the state of Georgia have come together under a group that's operated by Georgia Tech called Employers Like Me, um, and these employers are large self-funded plans, the South Wires um, of Georgia, and some of the uh, the big companies, um, and and we've been really delighted to have a partnership with them to improve worksite health. You know, adults spend eight, ten, if you're unlucky, m- maybe mm-hmm. more than that, um, uh, at work every day, five days a week, more time than you spend at home. So um, when those environments are healthy and supportive, they also can help people on their health journeys. Um, so we've been working with them um, uh, to try to promote some of those best practices in, in uh, across the state and in some of those employment settings. You know, there. Are, The more that employers can do to create healthy environments, both for their employees and then the people that visit their places of employment, uh, the the better off we will all be. Tobacco-free places, accessible stairwells with prompts to use the stairwell instead of the elevator, healthy food offerings um, in the vending machines and whatever the food uh, offering might be there. Those are all things that employers can do, and that doesn't involve a transaction of money with us. Um, <laughs> so.
0: I was reading an article the other day about the value on a number of fronts for the business enterprise that engages in wellness programs for their employees up to and including either paying for or at least defraying the cost of fitness programs, fitness centers, for example, uh, for their employees to take part in. Do we have any kind of data or, or initiatives along the, those lines from the perspective of education from, from the state level?
1: So we've partnered with um, CDC in a program called, um, uh, around work worksite health, um, where they are collecting data from employers across the state. One of the things that we know is that there are more opportunities for improvement in that area, um, especially in smaller employment uh, employers. Um, Employers between 50 and 200 seem to, you know, have the most opportunity to really improve and probably have some of the biggest challenges in terms of offering worksite health programs. Um, But those work, those health engagement models um, where you encourage an employee to really take control of their own health through the health benefit plan, they do work, especially when they're um, combined with environmental changes in the worksite. The department of public health for example we have a fantastic uh, worksite health program we're really lucky um, we're constantly engaging in new activities a- access to a gym is a great part of what we have offered uh, to our employees but if you can't have that for your um, site you know things like walking meetings time off from work to get physical activity um, those are low cost or uh, low impact kinds of things that employers can can do for their employees. And again, going tobacco free is a really simple one and that employers can do to improve health for their employees.
0: Clearly one of the big sources of cost, in addition to our salaries that, that we're paying as a business, but but around those, especially the ones that are in those 50 plus employees where they're required to be providing a measure of of health benefit Uh, that was one of the things that the piece was talking about was how clearly and I've seen this with the employers I've been a part of every year you're going back and you're renegotiating your rates because they're going up again and they're probably changing companies to try to fight that Uh, but that was one of the benefits of having an actual wellness program in place was being able to mute the rate of increase of cost for your health benefits that you're providing to your employees decrease absenteeism, greater buy-in from the employees just from uh, the perspective of their employers investing in them in a way that is, I guess, at least historically, not necessarily very traditional. Um, and then obviously, the more the employee participates in that, the, the more these things are happening. They're stopping smoking, they're avoiding obesity. And, and so you can really, as an employer, truly begin to have a pretty significant impact on some of these things. And I, I, I'm i not very versed in them and I, I would like to become more so. Uh, I know that the Affordable Care Act had a, in, in it a component around a compliant wellness program that had specific, there's specific measures around it. And we don't have to go into that too much right now, but it's something I would like to learn more to be able to provide some more information about to tie into that component because there's some tax benefits for that for that business that engages in a ACA compliant wellness program that can make uh, a significant impact on the amount of uh, income tax match that the employer has to make for making those available to their employees. So some very good reasons to get into those. And before I get you back to your office, I know that you all are really busy. Are are, are there any final thoughts that we need to leave our audience with before we get you going?
1: I guess just the one last thing I would say is, you know, we um, we do really encourage if people to know their numbers. So, you know, if you're talking with patients, or perhaps you're not a physician and you're a listener, wondering, well, what can you do for yourself in terms of um, avoiding a chronic condition or um, controlling the one you have. We've taken a little spin on, on CDC um, uh, CDC's ABCs. I don't know if folks have heard of that. And we've added a few letters. So <laughs> we, we say um, you should know your numbers. And, and, and by that, we want you to remember the ABCDs, um, aspirin when appropriate, blood pressure control, cholesterol management, diabetes. So make sure you're screened for that. And that's something we didn't talk about, but that is something that's recommended for all adults over the age of forty-five. Um, well, we can
0: talk about that real quick.
1: Yeah. Well, just that we would encourage providers to um, make sure that they are screening their patients for diabetes. Earlier, we talked about, you know, you don't you don't feel unwell. Some people might with the early signs of diabetes or pre-diabetes. We have hundreds of thousands, we believe, unfortunately, of adults in this state with undiagnosed diabetes. Um, and that's not a condition that's going to get better um, without a diagnosis. So um, we do encourage uh, screening and um, routine screening in adults over the age of 45, um, their A1C to be tested or glucose to be tested.
0: Something on that note, the, Dr. Ellie Campbell, one of the physicians that I've had join me on, this, on the show a number of times. Uh, she's integrative medicine primary care, And is is very aggressive with her patients with regards to as it comes to the the blood glucose monitoring, the fasting glucose. She talked about the fact that we don't really call it diabetes till they get over 121. Even as a fasting glucose starts to approach 100, she's saying that as a physician, we need to start thinking about that patient and and maybe making some behavioral changes early in that phase, in that pre-diabetic phase. And she talked about the fact that now several times over just the course of her career, since she was in, in training in medical school, that the number that we've decided is consistent with diabetes and the changes that come with it has gotten lower and lower and lower. And she believes it's going to go lower again, even below 121. So that being a piece to go along with that is don't wait until it's outside of normal per se to think this patient might need some more. Uh, aggressive engagement on that.
1: Right. And I mean, we rarely see just diabetes in isolation also, right? Usually what we see is someone who was overweight or obese in their 20s or maybe younger. We then tend to see high cholesterol show up in their lab tests when we have those. Then we see hypertension. Then we see diabetes, right? And by the time you're at that diabetes diagnosis, um, at least for type two, usually in the 40s or 50s, it's, it's very late in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and and. Cardiovascular disease risks are really very real um, at that point as is stroke. And so the earlier we can catch people in that cascade, the better off we we can be. And there are things that we can do to reverse um, or slow down the advancement of those chronic conditions for sure.
0: And clearly getting a primary care doctor that you go see every year is is a great idea particularly for our patients uh, that and and persons that live around our region because as we've talked about there's plenty of risk factors out here in our community and and as you described in the uh the powerful story that you shared that might be the thing that really heads off a significant event for you that either could could change your life or end it uh that's pretty significant the the blood pressure that she was dealing with and didn't even realize it wasn't even feeling any kind of symptoms having a primary care physician that you go to see on a regular basis clearly something that's going to help you
1: and for folks who don't have that either because they live geographically somewhere where they can't get there they can't afford it um just one more thing i would offer is that you know the public health system is out there we have clinical locations in 159 counties across the state Many counties also have federally qualified community health centers. And so, you know, those places should be resources for patients um, to to get at least access to information about what other kinds of supports might be out there for
0: them. What kind of service would I get if I go there to one of those centers?
1: It does vary across the state. And I think a little uh, later this fall, your listeners may be hearing from one of our district health directors who's going to talk specifically about the programs that they've created in Augusta to manage diabetes and hypertension in the health departments for patients who don't have insurance or other access to care. And we are um, starting to build some of those programs across the state and um, in, in they're open where they're available to patients with or without insurance really at any age. Um, Valdosta is another area where they've done some tremendous work with their um, free clinics for people who can't otherwise afford or access care for their diabetes or hypertension
0: you have some information resources, whether it's websites or other other numbers that you need to share before we go?
1: Just folks who are looking for more information can always go to the Department of Public Health website. That's www.dph.ga.gov.
0: And if you have not done so already in the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll find the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store where the Top Docs Radio Show podcast lives and subscribe to us. That way, when the new episode comes out each week, it's downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to listen to whenever it's convenient for you. And we do hope you turn around and share this information just after you've been checking out the podcast. Click share. Send it over to LinkedIn, to your networks there, and, and on Facebook and Twitter. You might just be putting some information in the hands of somebody that you care about that ends up making a big difference in their life. Jean was sharing a great story earlier about somebody whose life was changed just because she went to visit a physician. So if you put this in the hands of somebody that means something to you, you never know what that might mean for them. We'll say thanks in advance for that. Jean, thanks for taking some time to sit in with us today. Great information.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And to Tom and Donald, Susan and Lori over at Medical Association of Georgia, really want to say thanks so much for being great partners. I've really enjoyed the guests. We've gotten to meet along the way as we've been doing this show now for going on two years. It's pretty crazy that it's been here this long. But uh, we really have enjoyed this relationship. And all the folks who have made time to uh, sit in with us, we really want to say thanks so much for your time. We look forward to catching up with you same time, same place next week. We'll see you then.